Eric Estep here. One of my favorite parts of being a NASCAR fan is collecting diecasts. It's how I got my start on YouTube, actually. To me, a room is not complete until it features shelves of NASCAR diecast cars. It's as good a time as ever to continue your collection or begin an all-new one by pre-ordering your favorite driver's 2022 next-gen diecast at LionelRacing.com or at any authorized Lionel retailer. Lionel is the official diecast of NASCAR, and don't miss Lionel Racing's NASCAR Authentics diecasts at a Walmart or Target near you. Not only is Lionel the official diecast of NASCAR, but they're also official supporters of the Out of the Groove Podcast Network. So what are you waiting for? Head to LionelRacing.com to order your favorite driver's 2022 diecast. Since the early days of NASCAR, the word rookie hasn't really fit the description it was intended for. The definition of rookie is a person in the first year of activity or sport, someone new to a profession, training, or activity. Let's just say new to NASCAR's Cup Series, but not new to driving race cars. In NASCAR's modern era that began in 1971, through the present day, there have been 21 winning rookie drivers. And just for fun, outside of the modern era, let's add Tiny Lund. He won the 1963 Daytona 500 as a rookie. Thousands of drivers have wheeled cars in NASCAR competition over the past 73 years. Less than 25 drivers have won Cup Series races in their rookie seasons. They enjoyed that awesome moment in time in Cinderella fashion that can never be taken away. Winning that first race is always memorable, but to do it as a rookie makes it incredibly special. Winning as a rookie is a perfect way for drivers to become noticed and by veteran superstars, by fans, by media members that often cover them. It's also the perfect way to build their own confidence for finding more wins throughout that first season in NASCAR's top series. Racing in NASCAR's Cup Series is a dream come true. To win there is the ultimate milestone reached more quickly than expected. From the time they first turn a steering wheel on the smallest of local tracks at young ages, they long for a chance to show what they can do. Winning as a rookie means having what it takes to get the job done against established winners and champions that they followed and read about for many years and it comes in the toughest arenas of stock car racing in the world. Yes, rookies really are talented when it comes to winning in NASCAR's Elite Cup Series. Welcome back to a Lifetime in NASCAR podcast, everyone. I'm Jerry Bunkowski, along with my good buddy, Ben White. Episode number 52, that's 5-2, and we have got a lot to talk about. Obviously, this is uh, right after the Daytona 500 that was won by Austin Sindrick, the rookie. And, you know, Ben, you were down there. Tell me a little bit about uh, about your, uh, your, you know, your trip. It was not a vacation by any stretch. It was a lot of work, I know that. But tell me about, you know... Uh, uh, I, I know you have something that you want to definitely uh, 
puff your chest out and kind of toot your own horn. So tell us about that whole, the whole experience down there. Well, it, it was a great experience, Jerry. And, you know, Daytona is always a lot of fun, a little bit of nerves really, because you can sort of feel it in the air down there. It's the first race of the 2022 NASCAR cup series season, uh, in new cars, uh, you could feel it in the air. You could feel it with among the drivers and the teams and, it was kind of an unknown with everybody down there because we'd seen the cars at the LA Coliseum, but we didn't know what was going to go there. So, mm -hmm. uh, that, that worked out, uh, of course, with rookie driver, Austin, uh, Cindric winning the race. And I, I gotta say, you know, I got to toot my horn just a little bit with a hot head section of, <laughs> of, uh, out of the groove. I did pick Austin to win people, you know, that ask me left and right. And I go to the grocery store and I go to the theater and I go to all these places. How did you come up with that particular person? How did you, how did you know it was going to be him? And it's like, I just, I just guessed. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I was being facetious. Nobody's ever asked me that other than you. But uh, I, No, I guessed. I, it was just a, just a pulling the number out of a hat. I just thought, you know, well, he's in a good car and all those things, but, you know, talking about rookie drivers, um, they, they go back, um, all the way back to 1974. And as far as the modern era, now that's the, and, and, and to define the modern era, I guess you could say 1971, mm -hmm. uh, is when the modern era began. And that's when RJ Reynolds tobacco company came in and, and sponsored the series. So anything prior to that, uh, is, uh, the grand national and the strictly stock cars of, uh, of NASCAR history and there. And I, and quite honestly, there probably were some Ricky drivers that won on some of the smaller, uh, short tracks, the little bull rings, the quarter miles and some of the dirt track half miles back in those days. But as far as the modern era, you have to go all the way back to September 28th, 1974 to find a rookie driver who really, in all honesty, wasn't really a rookie driver. As far as his career goes, he was a rookie driver in the cup series, which was then the Winston cup series. And that gentleman's name was Earl Ross, and uh, he was a Canadian driver that came in to drive for Junior Johnson. Uh, he won a race at Martinsville Speedway, and uh, he came from Canada. His sponsor was Carling Beer, which is a Canadian uh, a beer company that came in, and uh, he was a teammate to Kel Yarborough, and he came and won that single race in car number 52, and uh, that's the only time that he won a Cup Series event. And uh, we'll talk a little bit more about Earl uh, Ross later in the show. But, yeah, anyway, there's a long list of rookie drivers that you say, uh, well, they're rookies, and it was really cool to see them win. But it started, I guess, in the modern era with Earl Ross, and then we look at Austin Sendrick, uh, a rookie driver, winning the 2022 Daytona 500 for Team Penske. So there's, there's quite a few of those great drivers on that list, rookie drivers that, that did win in the Cup Series. Exactly. And, you know, I'm looking at the list that you gave me and correct me if I'm wrong, but the only other rookie that I can see in the modern era that has won the Daytona 500 was Trevor Bain in 2011. Am I missing yeah. that or am I right on that? No, I believe you're right on that. Uh, that was 2011 in the Wood Brothers Ford. Uh, uh, and he, you know, got in that particular number 21 car uh, and he did win uh, that race. You know, and I'd have to go back. I hesitated just a second there. I have to go back and I have to look at uh, possibly uh, Tiny Lund. I'm not sure if Tiny Lund in 1963 
won any prior races. Uh, that's something we have to go back and look at because it, it's very possible that Tiny was also a rookie driver on in the Cup Series when he won the 1963 Daytona 500 for the Wood Brothers. And as we talked about on the show other times, he filled in for Marvin Patch when Marvin was hurt in a sports car accident there in Daytona Beach uh, at the at Daytona International Speedway, filled in for him. Not sure if he had won any more races. I'm thinking right now, I don't believe he did. So maybe we add Tiny to that list. But uh, yeah, that's, that's uh, another one that, that uh, Trevor Vane got in the car and, and won the Daytona 500. And he was about, uh, I would say, the most surprised guy in the place other than all the other fans in attendance and the millions watching on TV. Right place, right time, drove a great race that day and, and ended up winning the fifth time for the Wood Brothers in the Daytona 500 and has not won any other Cup Series events, but he is driving some uh, Xfinity Series races for uh, Joe Gibbs Racing this year. And he got a heck of a push towards the finish line in the checkered flag by Carl Edwards. Um, that's, you know, to me, that was the epitome of, you know, obviously Carl was driving for uh, Joe Gibbs Racing, but the fact that, you know, he was, um, uh, Trevor was a, a fellow Ford driver. He pushed him to the, to the front and stayed right on his bumper and let that kid win. I mean, was it a day after his, what was his 20th birthday, if I remember correctly? I, so I believe you're right, Jerry. I believe it was. And, you know, that's what kills me is these guys, uh, you know, they're 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, and they're already in some of these prominent race uh, cars and race teams. And mm -hmm. it's just like, wow. I mean, they, that shows you what kind of talent these guys have uh, to be already in some of these rides. And we see it today, how some of these young kids are, uh, and I say kids cause I'm 61, but they, they're already in prominent race with prominent race teams and race cars and just phenomenal how great they are. And so, you know, there was a time in NASCAR when you might have, Oh, I don't know, maybe eight or 10 cars at the front of a field, uh, say with petty enterprises and the wood brothers and junior Johnson's team. And, uh, maybe Nord Kruskoff, which was the number 71 car, Bobby Isaac and, and Harry Hyde as the crew chief. You had uh, Neil Bonnet in that car and, mm -hmm. and Bobby Isaac and some of those guys. Uh, and and Diegard when Daryl Waltrip was in that car and then Bobby Allison, Ricky Rudd. You, uh, the point is you maybe had eight or 10 cars that could win a race in, in the 70s and early 80s. Uh, and now, in all honesty, you could have 40 drivers in 40 teams uh, could win a race. We saw that with Michael McDowell last year, the right. 2021 Daytona 500. And that's partly why I picked Austin Sendrick to win the 500 this year, because you could literally go down the list and you could say any one of those 40 guys uh, could win the Daytona 500. That's how close and competitive all of these cars are. So you could basically put 40 car numbers in a hat and pick one and you would have a shot. I even thought about when I was trying to fill out that uh, section of hotheads, I was even thinking David Reagan, yeah, uh, possibly yeah. to win the 500. And I've really debated about David Reagan or Austin Sendrick and, and either one of those would be equally uh, legitimate to possibly win it. So that's what's so wonderful about today's racing. And, and like I said, in the past, you really could not say that because believe it or not, some of our fans may not realize this, but in let's take the mid seventies, 
very quickly, I can ex explain this, but uh, you might have, uh, uh, say you had David Pearson, the winner, Richard Petty, second, third place could have been, oh gosh, Bobby Allison. He might be three laps down. Yeah. Fourth yep. place would have been Neil Bonnet. He might've been five laps down, mm -hmm. Buddy Baker, seven laps down. Uh, you know, and you go on through down the line and the, and the 10th place guy could literally have been 10 laps down. And you think, how could that possibly be? But it's true. They, I mean, that, in that era of racing, you could finish seventh and have a decent finish and be six laps down. Yep. Yeah, that those days are long gone, thankfully, but I mean, it was, that's, that was the way it was in the seventies and early eighties. And as we got closer and closer to uh, the competitive marks that we have today, you didn't have cars go a lap down, uh, even today. I mean, if the, if they do, they're way back in the field, but the top tens, you might have as many as eight, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 laps down by the 10th place car. Pretty hard to believe in this in this era of racing. Exactly. You mentioned Tiny London while you were talking. I, I did look it up. Tiny did indeed win the 1963 Daytona 500. That was his first win. He was a, it was his a rookie win. And that, ironically enough, the Daytona 500 was the seventh race of the year that year, not the season opener, which, but still that was Tiny Lund's. Um, yeah. you know, so he joined, uh, you know, he joins both uh, Trevor Bain and um, uh, Austin Sindrick as rookie you know, gets his right. first win as a rookie at Daytona. And, and you know what, Jerry, something else to bring to mind while we're talking about it, for whatever reason, back in that era. And again, when we were talking about this list that we're going to give you here shortly, mm -hmm. that is of the, uh, the, what we said again, modern era. Now, back in those days, uh, you might have some of those drivers, the rookie drivers did win some races. That's partly why we missed tiny there, but Back in that era, for whatever reason, NASCAR would stop a, a, a season, say, on November 8th of 1963, mm -hmm. and then they would start the 1964 season, uh, say, on November 15th of 63. Right. And they would run four, five, or six races uh, through December, but they would count towards the 64 season. I'm not sure why they did that. But I guess to, there was no real off time back in that era because I guess there wasn't a lot of money uh, to, sh to share among the race teams. It was, you know, even drivers back in that era didn't really make a huge amount of money. They were part of the race uh, crew themselves. They might have seven, eight guys on the crew and the driver just had to be the guy to drive the car. Uh, making 150, 200 a week or whatever. It wasn't right. the big, big money that we see today. So, uh, but yeah, they would start the season uh, at the very end of the year and the points and the schedule would, would go towards the next year. So it was a little bit strange, but that's what they did for, for a lot of years. And, you know, obviously we talk a lot about history and this is kind of recent history, if you will, with Austin Sindrick. And what I mean by that is this, you know, he, the plan had been for him originally to move over to the Wood Brothers and begin his cup career with them. And then that all got changed when Brad Keselowski announced back in, what was it, July, I think it was, or August, that he was leaving Team Penske after last season. And he was going to become a co-owner or tri-owner of Roush Fenway Racing. And now it's called Roush Fenway Keselowski Racing or RFK for uh, Racing for short. 
And that opened up the the avenue for Austin Sindrick, who had been he'd been a very loyal soldier in the Team Penske camp. I mean, he he sure he won the Xfinity Championship in 2020. He finished second in uh, 2021. And, and like I said, the plan had been for him to go to the Wood Brothers. And then eventually, you know, as time would go on, he'd probably move into the Team Penske camp. But with Keselowski leaving, that kind of. Uh, uh, changed the game plan and he winds up going to replace Keselowski in the number two. And, uh, you know, I, I caught Rusty Wallace in the MRN radio um, broadcast of the race afterwards. And he was just thrilled because, you know, it was the old blue deuce, even though it was not uh, the, you know, uh, in Miller like colors or Miller colors, but still the, the number two winds up winning, but a lot of credit to Austin center. Cause he, he was very patient. I mean, you know, he, he's only what 23, 24 years old winds up winning the, the biggest race in the world uh, in terms of the stock car world. And, you know, just here's a guy that, you know, history was on his side. He knew time was going to be on his side. So he stayed in the Xfinity series, did, got a little bit more testing, a little bit more running, if you will. He did seven cup races last year. I think his, best finish. I think he had one, um, I think it was a ninth place finish. I think it was, I can't remember where it was at, but, um, you know, kudos to, to Austin Cindric for winning the Daytona 500 this year and just adding to that list. But I want to ask you a quick question and we're going to go into talking about some of these rookie wins as well too, but I, I got to ask you a question. Why does it seem over the last, Oh, probably 20 years, Ben, what is it about Ford that they just seem to have such domination more years than not at Daytona. And I'm talking not just the races and winning the Daytona 500, but, you know, the practices, the qualifying, I mean, you know, it was, a, it was an all Ford deal this year. Once again, what was it about Ford, especially, you know, I, I was a little surprised. I mean, sure. We had two Chevys on the front row with, um, with Kyle Larson and Alex Bowman, but Ford just absolutely dominated every other category. And, I was a little surprised because this is a brand new car and, you know, you would think there would have been a little bit more of a, um, a smattering, if you will, or, you know, uh, uh, that there'd be more, more Chevys in the, in the top 10. We only had one Chevy in the top 10. We only had two Toyotas in the top 10 and we had seven Fords in the top 10. What is it about Ford and Daytona over the years that Ford just seems to excel there at, at that place, as opposed to some of the other tracks where you think they would do well as at well, do as well at as well too. Uh, that's a great question, Jerry. I, I, I don't know that I really have a good answer for you. I think they, uh, as far as the, the Ford camp, maybe they just, uh, they, they get together with all of their drivers and their teams and, and I, you know, they, I don't know how much information they share, but they, they uh, they just come across as saying, you know, where it's a team effort, the big blue oval. We just want to, we want to work together if we can. And you know, I think they realize that it is every man for himself at the final lap or two, of course, because they, each team wants to do the best that they can. But throughout Speed Week, we used to call it Speed Weeks. Now, yep, yeah. But I I just think they really do work together closely and and try to. Uh, uh, you know, come across and, and try to win as much as they can. And uh, I think it is a, a true company team effort among all the, the Ford teams. And that's the only real good answer I have, because I think they do share information. I think they do share among the drivers and, and uh, the crew chiefs to a degree. I mean, I don't think they want to give too much information out, especially 
uh, in the last lap or two, because I mean, it is, they really do want to bring the win back to their respective race teams, but, but to a degree, I, I do think they try to help each other out there and they just, I don't know, they've excelled for, for many years and, uh, they, they work really hard at it. And, uh, even with a new car, they, they do have a team effort and they showed that when they run this, this particular race down there. Well, here's a shameless bit of self-promotion here. I'm going to say this. Um, as you know, I recently started a new website for Sports Illustrated called autoracingdigest.com. And one of my writers, Brian Eberly, had a great piece yesterday, the day after the Daytona 500, talking about Ford and their domination. And he, he quoted Mark Rushbrook, who's the, uh, uh, I think he's the director of uh, Ford Performance. And Mark basically said it was an all for one, one for all kind of effort. The strategy they did was across the board with all of Fords, whereas, you know, with some of the Toyotas, they were kind of off doing their own thing. And Chevrolet, you know, to, to Chevrolet's credit, yes, they only had one guy that finished in the top 10. But at the same time, you know, they had a lot of cars that got knocked out of the race due to wrecks too as well. So, but I did like Brian Eberly's uh, piece on autoracingdigest.com about Ford and, um, you know, the one for all, all for one um, strategy that they have. And that's one that they've had for the last you know 20 years. It's done very well for them. So, but anyway, let's talk a little bit about rookies and, you know, obviously Austin Sindrick wins the Daytona 500, the 64th running this past Sunday, but we have had, I mean, you know, obviously, if you're anybody, you're always going to remember that number one, that first win you've ever had. And, you know, Ben, you did a great job in the research that you did here of the modern era. And I'm looking at some of these names. I mean, this is like a who's who of of NASCAR and where they won some of these races. And let's, let's just kind of touch base on a few of these, because I think there's some great stories in there. This was one of the ones that immediately popped to my mind or popped to the, to the top of the list, if you will, because he's at the top of the list, essentially. And it was kind of a precursor to the success he would have there. And that's Dale Earnhardt, 1979, wins his first cup race at Bristol. And, you know, that became, he became so synonymous with success at Bristol. Um, what, what are your thoughts? What made, made Earnhardt so good at Bristol over the years? I mean, after he won that first race in 79, that kind of like opened the floodgates. And then he would wind up going on to 75 more wins, 76 in total in the mm -hmm. cup series in his career. Yeah, well, uh, the thing about Dale Earnhardt, he always had this mentality that uh, second was the first loser and that was the way he thought about it. And, you know, he grew up on the short tracks around Concord speedway and met the old Metro Atlanta speedway uh, in, around Charlotte. And, but that particular win in 1979, he was driving for Rod Osterlin and it was a nondescript Chevrolet Monte Carlo number two, yellow and blue car. And uh, all the other cars around him had sponsors that particular car did not, and it was on jack stands kind of in the corner. Nobody really paid him a lot of attention at that point. If you remember, this was a race in April of 79. Uh, it was his uh, first year uh, with uh, Rod Osterlin. He was a rookie. Right. Everybody knew he was Ralph Earnhardt's boy. So, I mean, he, but nobody really knew a lot about him. He had run pretty well uh, at the Daytona 579. Uh, but, okay everybody has a good run now and then i mean they just didn't really give him a lot of uh, a lot of kudos at that point but he gets to uh, bristol and he really somewhat dominates the race in this this like i said nondescript chevrolet and uh by the end of the race uh, there he is he's he's battling for position in the top five and 
clicks off uh, fifth, fourth, third, second, first, suddenly there he is taking the checkered flag and they're like, well, who is this kid? What is, what is the deal? And uh, who is he? And uh, he very quickly showed who he was. And, and of course, Rod Osterland was a businessman out of California. He wanted to get into NASCAR. Uh, he was looking for a, uh, a very aggressive uh, driver to put in his race cars and someone that, uh, that was really hungry to win, somebody that, that uh, could mix it up with the Pearsons and the Petties and the Allisons. And believe me, Dale Earnhardt was the man to, to do that. He was hungry to win. He, he, he was desperate to win. And he showed what he was made of at Bristol. And Bristol's a tough racetrack to run for 500 laps. And, uh, and Dale showed him how to do it. And, of course, he went on to win 75 more races. 67 of those came uh, with uh, Richard Childress. And sadly, we lost him in the last lap of the Daytona 500 in 2001. Seven championships and uh, just a tremendous person on off the racetrack and can't say enough about the guy. A great friend to me, great friend to a lot of folks. But uh, yeah, he had a, a tremendous career for sure. Exactly. You know, the one thing that... It always surprises me, and I said this before you talked more about Earnhardt, was how the first win always seems to mark the overall career, and certainly, like I said, about uh, Bristol and Earnhardt. But, you know, you look at the list here. Next guy that I wanted to point out was Davey Allison. 1987, his first cup win is at Talladega, which sadly became um was it five years later i think it was six years later i guess it was um where we lost davy in a helicopter a very tragic helicopter accident uh yeah. and red farmer was with him in that uh, helicopter and red sustained uh life-threatening injuries but eventually became you know he came back from those and you know continues to race even to this day and i think red's got to be pushing i think he's what 87 or 88 years old still uh, racing I, down I, there i think he's uh, i think he's 90 or 91 actually really my gosh yeah. my gosh <laughs> yeah and I I, i'm having so. a hard time just driving on the freeway at 64 but <laughs> so but yeah but, he's still but, he's still doing it yeah he's still he's still the man he's still out there you know, Ben, we, we talk about rookies and how they are so synonymous uh, oftentimes with places that uh, they made history at in the few in the previous years. Uh, like Dale Earnhardt, we were talking about you know, his first cup win was at Bristol, a place that he he you know had fantastic success at. And then the next guy on my list that I wanted to talk about was Davey Allison. And uh, not for the same reason. Uh, uh, he His first cup win was 1987 at Talladega. And then sadly, uh, about six years later, he was uh, practicing touch and go landings with his brand new helicopter. He had a uh, red farmer with him in the helicopter. And unfortunately, we, uh, you know, um, Davey crashed and he survived for, I think it was another I think it was 24 or 28 hours, something like that. And then he you know, sadly passed away the next day from his injuries. But, you know, it, I was getting into the point where, you know, we've lost so many people. Uh, you know, we, we were talking to Ernie Irvin uh, earlier today, you and I both, uh, you know, prior to the taping for various things we're working on. And Ernie had talked about how uh, he, one of his regrets was his two injuries uh, that, essentially ended his career, they came five years apart to the day, 
at the same exact location, Michigan International Speedway. And he talked about, you know, the regrets of not being able to continue on and, you know, seeing what his career would have gone like. I mean, he still had 331 starts, 15 cup wins, but much like Davey uh, Allison. And another guy that I became very close with was, uh, was Alan Kowicki. We lost him on uh, April 1st of uh, 1993, and he didn't even really get to enjoy his 1992 championship. He only had it, enjoyed it for about four and a half, five months, and then we lost him in a plane crash uh, not far from Bristol Motor Speedway. And, you know, it, it, it saddens me to see, you know, how many drivers we have lost over the years or who have not able to, been able to maybe fulfill the uh, the expectations they had and Ernie Urban's a perfect example of that, you know, he, he thought he could very easily have won 30 races, uh, you know, in his career, but Davey Allison getting back to him though. I mean, here's a guy that, you know, came out of, uh, Huey town, uh, you know, uh, such a great legend legacy, you know, uh, you know, obviously with his father, his, his uncle, and, you know, obviously won a number of races and then to have his life cut short, but, but Davey, at Talladega, his first career win there uh, as a uh, it was uh, he, he was not a, I don't believe he was a rookie I think it was actually his second or third year uh, was in 1987. Davey Allison and Talladega though they had a, a very special bond not only with him winning there for the first time but the fact that he was from Hueytown which is literally right down the street from or right down the road if you will from uh, Talladega as well too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, and uh, you know um, Talladega and the Allisons just kind of go together. You know that. Uh, no question about that. Hueytown, I think, is, I want to say, I'm guessing, about um, not even about 30 miles from Talladega. I might right. be a little off on that. Right. But, yeah, it's, you know, Davey uh, and Bobby and Donnie just love, love, love Talladega. And if I'm not mistaken, I'm 99% sure this is true. This The day that Davey won that race in 87 was the day that, Bobby had the tire explode on the front stretch and just about went in the stands. Mm-hmm. And so it was kind of a bittersweet day, but fortunately Bobby was not injured in the crash. Um, Bobby told me, and Bobby's a really close friend of mine too. And, and as Davey was, and Bobby said that when the car came to, uh, to rest, he said he felt like there was liquid something on his face and on his hands. He was afraid it was blood. He, he thought that he had been really injured. And he, he said, I was really happy to, to find out that it was oil from a broken oil cooler. And oh, <laughs> he said, cause it was warm and it was liquid. He said, that scared me. That would make you think it was said, blood. Yes. Yes. I agree with you. He said, okay. This is, this is, uh, this is oil, not blood. This is good. The second thing he said, I was so happy to find out was that the helicopters were not firing up meaning that the people in the stands were not seriously injured. That's the first thing he thought of, not the right. second. Right. And, uh, but he said he got out of the car and, and all it was not injured, but I mean, he said the car just when the tire blew at 200 miles an hour, it just lifted off the ground. He said, I felt helpless. There's nothing I could do at that point. And that is what basically started the roof flaps on these race cars to try to help put the cars on the ground. Uh, and the restrictor plates too, mm-hmm. because before that they didn't have restrictor plates. So if you can imagine, you know, this is in the era when, when Bill Elliott was turning to over 212 miles an hour mm-hmm. for, uh, to do qualifying. And I, if that particular race, everybody in the field was over 200 miles an hour 
in qualifying. That's that's amazing to think that what forty three cars were over two hundred miles an hour. Uh, even the back guy, even the guy forty third was turned over two hundred miles an hour. And so, uh, but yeah, back to Davey though. I mean, that was a tremendous win for him. It was his home track. Uh, a lot of the people that uh, live in Hueytown were there that day. A tremendous victory for him. Uh, he was still driving for uh, Harry Rainier and later mm -hmm. on in 89 is when Robert Yates bought the team from Harry. Uh, but that's where, where Davey wanted to be. He said, I want to finish my career with Robert Yates. I want to drive for him uh, forever. Uh, and that's the way it turned out to be because Davey did lose his life in the helicopter. But what the reason Davey was at the racetrack the day of the helicopter crash Neil Bonnet was working on coming back, making a comeback uh, into the Cup Series after ha suffering a head injury in 1990 at Darlington mm -hmm. while driving for the Wood Brothers. And uh, so Neil desperately wanted to come back. A lot of people, including myself, had talked to Neil about, are you sure it's what you want to do? Because you have a tremendous career as an announcer for CBS Sports. You're doing great. This is what you really are good at. He said, yes. I know that, but I really have got this itch to come back. When well, 93, he did come back uh, driving for uh, Richard Childress, and then we lost Neil uh, in a during a practice session at Daytona in 1994. But that's why Davey was there. Davey and Red wanted to fly over there just to see how Neil was doing, and uh, David Bonnet was also testing. And he was trying to put the, the helicopter down and almost got it down. And I don't know exactly what happened, but uh, lost control of the helicopter and it crashed on his side, on Davy's side. And that, and then the rest of the story we know. But uh, man, I tell you what, Davy was just such a great friend to me. And I still think about him a lot. There's a lot of things that happen. Uh, even now, like for instance, I'll give you this, I'll go to the grocery store and the bill will come up to be $33 and 28 cents, or I'll go to the, to pump gas and, and on occasion it'll come up, not anymore because gas is so high, but it'll be $28 and 28 cents. Yep. 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 Or it'll pot the, the, the 28 will come up so much and you know what there's something about bobby you know bobby ran the number 312 on the short tracks before he came to the cup series in the modifieds and his number was 312 that was his birthday mm -hmm. december 3rd and he ran 312 and the number 312 pops up uh, for me all the time i could look at a clock <laughs> and and i see it always pop 312 always pops up and it's just amazing how much the 28 and the 312 or the number 12 pops up. And I've told Bobby that many times, how, how many times during the day, these numbers pop up, but I don't know if it's Davey talking to me. I don't know what the deal is, but I had so much fun with Davey doing things. The first time I ever tasted venison was from Davey and he forced me to, <laughs> I was like, you got to try this. You got to try this. You got to try this. I said, man, I am not into that. And he's like, no, 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 you got to do this. It's really, really good. And it's like, uh, under whose standards is it good? I don't know. I don't know if I want any. So I finally did. You know, I won't say under gunpoint, but I did finally do it. It was okay. But did it taste like uh, chicken? No, I don't really know how to describe it, but I just wasn't, you know, I said, yeah, it's great. But I'm not sure if I was telling the truth. But I mean, they, that's, you know, so many things we did together. I'm, I mean, 
I didn't see him on a daily basis. And, and when he got in the cup series, I didn't see him as much because he was so busy, but I want to say he was my friend and maybe not as close as some folks, but he was my friend and we were good friends. But anyway, the point is that he was, had he lived, he was going to go on and win championships. Yes. But talking about Ernie though, I think Ernie felt really, really bad about what happened at the final race in 1992 uh, because he got into Davey. Davey only had to finish sixth or better to win the championship of 1992, regardless of what anybody else did. And lap 259 of that race, uh, Ernie got into Davey on the front stretch because he blew a tire and took Davey out, and Davey did not win the championship. And I think Ernie still feels bad about that. Uh, it wasn't anything Ernie did wrong. It's just the tire blew and he got into Davey and ended that championship. And Davey was extremely classy about it and said, no worries. That's the way racing is. We'll get them next year. Well, next year didn't come because right. he passed away the next year, right. but that's the way fate has it. But Davey was so classy about that kind of stuff. And 92 for Davey was either win or crash big. One of the two, it was never anything else. He crashed so many times. If you think back, Pocono, he crashed the, the all-star race at Charlotte. He crashed Bristol. He crashed. He won or crashed. It was just such an up and down year, but had he lived, he would have, he would have probably, you know, he could have maybe possibly won the, the 93 championship, but in his mind, we're going to come back and win. We're too good not to, to win yes. the championship. And it never happened. So exactly. Anyway. Well, you know, I'll, I'll tell you my, 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 uh, if I ever write a book about my life, this is definitely going to be in there. This is my Davey Allison story. And it's kind of a, it's kind of a funny one. Um, 1988, we were in Phoenix for the uh, race that Alan Kowicki eventually won. It was his first ever cup win, his rookie, you know, he wasn't a rookie, but I mean, it was his first uh, cup win. And he did the Polish victories lap, the backwards run. But a few days before that, um, I don't remember if it was, I, I, I want to say it was a Ford sponsored deal. If I remember correctly, it was a media day at Bondurant's, uh, Bob Bondurant's uh, school of high performance driving out in suburb. They had just, I think they had just moved like a year or two earlier from their previous uh, location in Sears, Sears point, uh, which is now Sonoma raceway. They moved down and built a brand new, beautiful facility down in uh, Chandler, Arizona, right outside of Phoenix. And so they had this media uh, day deal and it was Davey Ellison, Bill Elliott, and Bob Bondurant, you know, whose name, you know, uh, was he was the one that founded the school, but obviously a great driver as well, too. And the interesting thing is uh, they paired us off with various drivers. So, you know, we drive with Erner, I mean, with uh, Allison first, and then Elliott, and then Bob Bondurant took us out uh, in this, I think it was like an 18-seat Econoline van, a super stretch one. Can you imagine going around a road course in an Econoline van? That was scary as anything. But <laughs> the first driver that I get in the in with is Davey Ellison. I'm the first media guy that gets in the car with him. Okay, he's he's gonna you know do a number of uh, of trips around the road course they had built there, and then Bill Elliott eventually got to, to ride with him too. But Davey Ellison, I mean, it was. It was almost hysterical because here I am, I'm petrified out of my legs. I mean, you know, and he's just, he's like got, you know, it was, his arm was up near the, 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 um, the, you know, the window net. You know, he's just like, it's like a Sunday drive to him. And I, here I'm going, oh my God, watch the turn. Watch it. Wait, we go. Slow down. <laughs> right, right. He, he thought that was hysterical. And so 
you know, we, we, I think we did, I think three laps around the road course, if I remember correctly. And so I get out, I'm shaking, my legs are shaking. And so then I, a few minutes later, I, you know, they put me in with Bill Elliott and Bill, Bill was a little bit more state. So I wasn't as, I wasn't as off the wall panicky as I was with Davey, but apparently Davey must've liked my uh, reaction because I heard about it the next day at the, at the racetrack. They said, Hey, how was your ride with Davey Ellison? I mean, it was, it was, it was funny. I mean, and he was just such a nice guy. I mean, he was yeah. just, he was so what? friendly, you know, and I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, no, I was just going to say, uh, you know, I think the rule of thumb is if you're a media member, you really aren't ever supposed to go around a racetrack with a driver because it's their chance to get you back for anything <laughs> that you, that you wrote about them. And it's, you know, it's, they, maybe they didn't agree with everything you said. So this is like, okay, <laughs> this is my chance. I remember one time I went around Charlotte motor speedway with Dale Earnhardt jr. In a passenger car. Mm-hmm. And I mean, he was really kind about it. We, you know, and that's, what's so interesting. They've done this so much. And you look over at the speedometer, it's like somewhere, depending on what they're driving there is somewhere in the, you know, 160 or 70 range and they're the elbow on the, on the left door, and they're just zooming along and you're over there white knuckled. And, <laughs> you know, yep. You're over there thinking I'm just six inches from the wall here. Yep. And they're, yep. they're like, mm, so how's your, how's it going? How's your mom? How's this? How, yep. yep. You know, and, oh, I met her once and, uh, you know, that kind of thing. And, uh, you know, you're talking just casually and they're uh, no kidding. They're like six inches from the wall and they drop down on the back stretch and they're up towards the wall again. They've done it so many times. And I remember a quick story. I know we're off the beaten path here, but I remember we, I was at Indianapolis and I had a chance to drive. There was a new Corvette Chevy was coming out with, and I had a chance to go around Indianapolis. Uh, I have told this story once before around Indianapolis with JJ Yaley in mm-hmm. a Corvette with the Chevy mm-hmm. folks. And so I hop in this Corvette, super cool. I'm, I'm assuming, I don't know how fast we, we got, but it was pretty, pretty fast in this Corvette and we're zooming along again. How's everything going? How's the writing going? How's this? How's that? Blah, blah, blah. Again, very comfortable on his end. I'm having a blast, but I'm concerned about how close we're getting to the wall (laughs) and we come back in and I do notice there's some smoke coming out the back of this Corvette. Now this thing is brand new off the showroom floor really nice black beautiful i don't know what they cost 80 grand i don't know what they cost and this uh, we pull back after about five laps we pull back in on pit road and the, i see this white look on this these executives faces and the the wide eyed it's like oh something's not right and they look down at jj and he said let me ask you a question when you pulled in before and you put on the parking brake did you take it back off oh uh, and they looked down and it's like the parking brake was still on. Oh my and gosh. So he's out there at 180 or 160 or something. He forgot to take the parking brake off and it's smoking. I mean, we're, and I was like, Oh, this might be a good time to leave. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's they stage left. That's right. They weren't super happy. And uh, so they, they had this shocked white faced. Oh my God. Look how much damage did you do? But, he said, Nope, I guess I forgot to take it off. And, uh, <laughs> he popped it off. The next person popped in, but they didn't, they weren't real happy. I can so imagine. Anyway, we've, we've had some fun times, but anyway, back to this, I want to get back to the rookie list. Sure. And there's, there's, there's another one I want to talk about real fast. Mm-hmm. 
Ron Burchard, 1981 Talladega. Uh, let me set the stage for you. Terry Labonte, Darrell Waltrip, final lap, side by side, door handle to door handle, possibly touched a couple of times. They're on the back stretch. They're looking over at each other. And this is before the seats had these wraparound pads. Okay. They, back in those days, it was just a plain old seat. Matter of mm -hmm. fact, Dale Earnhardt Sr. would make his own seats. He would get seats out of Chevy vans and he would modify them himself and he would make them himself, believe it or not. And he would put them in his race car. So that's just a normal seat. You didn't have, you had a way to where you could look over at the guy through the screen net and through the passenger side window. So Daryl and Terry are looking at one another, going down the back stretch, foot on the floor, the, the throttle, I mean, the gas pedal far as it could go, going into the back stretch into turn three. It's going to come down between Terry and Daryl, right? Mm -hmm. Coming into three, going out of four. And suddenly there's Ron Burchard, rookie Ron Burchard in the 47, Jack Beebe, Buick to the bottom side and suddenly it's like a three car battle for this for the win and suddenly it's like well daryl says well where did he come from as it turned out ron burchard was not a lap down this rookie driver drops to the bottom and he he clearly beats the two of them to the start finish line and he wins the race mm -hmm. the rest of the story is Somewhere on the East Coast was a major, major, major transformer that blew up that took the video or the television part of it out. The audio still worked for CBS Sports, but not the video, not right. the TV part. So Ken Squire is in the booth and he's calling this, but they have they lose the picture. So they just have a graphic of a couple of race cars on the TV screen across the East coast. And so Ron Burchard's father wants to see his son win his only <laughs> cup series race and he can't. Right. Right. And so needless to say, from what I understand, the TV abruptly goes through the wall. <laughs> abruptly. <laughs> uh, and uh, you know, uh, and as I wrote once some more, more flower pots and six packs of beer also went through windows. Yep. Because uh, especially in the Northeast, because mm -hmm. Ron was a well-known modified driver and people wanted to see uh, him win the race, but he, he did win it. And, uh, so the next week, CBS sports had some type of skating or some type of basketball game or something on. And they purposely cut away from the ball game or after the ball game. And they showed the finish mm -hmm. and, uh, Brett Musburger and Ken Squire had a 15 or 20 minute piece that they did together showing it and apologized for what happened, but it wasn't CBS's fault. It was some type of problem with the, uh, with this transformer somewhere that made it impossible for them to show the finish. But back to Ron Burchard, it was his only cup series victory. And that car is still in a museum up in Connecticut somewhere that actually it's in Ron Burchard's museum. Right. We lost, right. we lost Ron a few years back uh, and he's passed away now, but it was a, a tremendous uh, victory because he nobody knew uh, that Ron was in the same lap as Terry and Daryl, but he dropped to the bottom and snuckered them both. And he went on to victory lane, but that was a tremendous victory, especially at a, at a super speedway like that. But the backstory was millions of people didn't get to see it. 
Yeah, that's right. And, exactly. And they exactly. were kind enough the next week to to put it on air and let people see the finish. But Ron's Ron's uh, dad had to not only buy a new television, but he had to fix the wall that he threw <laughs> the, the television through. That's a true story. Get a little spackle. That's right. Exactly. Yeah, a lot more, a lot of spackle in a few. Exactly. Bucks. Exactly. All right. Let's go back to our list here. Yeah, Tony Stewart, his first uh, rookie win was in uh, at Richmond in 1999. The guy that I want to talk about though is in 2000. I was at this race, and this is one of my. How should I put this? One of my rare moments of naivete. Okay. 2000, we're at Texas Motor Speedway. Dale Earnhardt Jr. wins his first cup race. You know, he'd won the two previous uh, uh, then Bush Series championships in 80 or 98 and 99. Goes full-time cup series racing in 2000. I'm there. And for the life of me, I couldn't figure out what the big deal was. Okay, Dale Earnhardt Jr. wins a race. It's his, you know, he's the son of Dale Earnhardt. I, you know, I I guess I didn't. I guess I never fully grasped at the time how good or how great of a driver junior would eventually go on to become. I just figured, okay, you know, he won. It was his daddy's team. You know, he wins. Okay. Big deal. And I've heard that from many people have told that story to they go, what are you nuts? I go, well, you know, it was the first time, you know, but, but uh, I still remember that as if, as if it was yesterday. I mean, the way senior, uh, you know, came up to junior and, and just gave him this incredible bear hug. And I mean, I don't know, I, I wasn't around Earnhardt a lot in the nineties, but um, you know, uh, and, and, you know, sadly, I, you know, uh, when I first started with ESPN in 2001, my first race working for them was the, the ill-fated Daytona 500 that Earnhardt uh, senior passed away in, but I don't think I've ever seen, you know, either, uh, you know, live or in person or uh, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, on TV, rather, you know, Earnhardt was so proud. I mean, I've never, I, I don't think I've ever seen a big, as big a smile as I saw on his face that day when his son won and he, they were both in victory lane. It was just an incredible um, experience to, to see that. But again, I, I said, okay, Dale Jr. Okay, big deal. He's probably never going to win another race in his career. Boy, was I stupid and wrong, wasn't I? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the, I think the thing that I remember most is uh, after the race and Dale Jr.'s in victory lane, how Dale Sr. just was, you know, you know, pulling people away from the car in victory lane to get to Dale right. Jr. Right. And, you know, it's, I mean, you know how it is in victory lane. It's just a mob of, of folks uh, getting there. And, of course, you got the TV camera and the, and the announcer, whichever uh, TV affiliate there is, whether it be Fox or NBC, whoever it is. And trying to get to the winner and it's chaos and all this. And here comes this white uh, uniform with good wrench on it. And he's like throwing people out of the way to get to him. And it's just, it's, it's tremendous to see the success uh, that you have after, uh, you know, and I, I'm sure this, this is part of the story too. You know, you go to a major corporation like Budweiser and you say, all right, I want to put my son in a race, a, a cup series car for Dale Earnhardt incorporated and they're all well and good. I mean, we'd love to have you in the car because you're a seven-time champion. And so right. I'm committed. But how do we know he's going to win a race? How do we know he's going to be as good as you are? How do we know he can win races? Well, how do you answer that question? You, you can't. And I think what you do is you sit across the big oak table and say, well, I guarantee he can win races because he's an Earnhardt. Now, 
how do you how do you guarantee that well it's all word of mouth at that point and you shake hands and pat each other on the back and you sign the papers and you walk out and you look at you you look at him in the eyes with those big brilliant blue eyes that Earnhardt had said boy you better win because (laughs) I just signed (laughs) you know I just signed a 10 million dollar contract that says you're going to win and it's a huge amount of pressure and so that pressure I guess is lifted when you see that that car and him in victory lane but it's also a personal personal triumph to you to, to finally see all these things come together because on the Dale Jr. side, he, he raced, you know, I guess, uh, the short track Bandolari stuff and the, and the late model stuff. And it's a dream come true for him. Matter of fact, I remember him screaming on the radio and the final lap saying, I love you, dad. I love you, dad. I love you, dad. Thank you, dad. Thank you. Thank you. Cause he saw that wind coming together and it's a lot of hard work. It's a lot of, uh, tension and a lot of pressure that comes together uh, in victory lane and that, but it's just a, a personal triumph and it's a family triumph and everybody's involved. So, so many people are involved. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, another side note to that particular race, that was the only start for Adam Petty too. That's uh, right. That's right. Yeah. I forgot about that. You're right. And right. Uh, yeah. And then we tragically lost Adam not, not long after that, a week or two later. And uh, so, yeah, it was just a very, a very emotional happy time for Dale Jr. to win. And then we lost Adam right after that. But uh, boy, it was, you know, it just had to be huge relief to see Dale Jr. go into to victory lane there. But yeah, I just, that's the, that's my most vivid memory is how Earnhardt would, was throwing people out of the way. And, and, and that's the way Earnhardt Sr. would do it. Anytime he talked to me, I can tell you from personal experience, I'd sit on the back of the trans- Goodrich transporter waiting on him to come so we could have this one-on-one interview or whenever, anytime we ever did those. And he would always, always, always grab me by the back of the shirt, like in the middle of the back of your shirt, <laughs> right. and grab me and, and pull me up into the transporter. He wouldn't say, okay, I'm ready. It's like, that's his way of saying I'm ready. And he'd drag me up into the, you know, it's typical Earnhardt. And that's, that was affectionately his way of saying, okay, I'm ready to talk now. And well, you know, if, like, this, if this whole racing thing hadn't worked out for him, he would have been a great bouncer, you know, just great. Shirt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He would have, he was just, he was just very aggressive, but that was his way of doing it. He'd grab you by the back of the middle of the shirt collar. If you had on like a, a golf shirt or a, or a button down shirt, he'd grab you right in the middle of the back of your head, below your head. And he would grab your shirt and say, all right, let's go. And he'd like, just dang near drag you into the back, you know, head first into the back of the transporter. And that was just his way. It was a loving kind. I was just going to say, right. Aggress- you know, affectionate way of saying, come on, let's go do this. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, let me, we had a couple more, I know we're, our time is getting uh, closer to the hour, but I wanted to get, mention a couple other uh, rookie yeah. drivers and their first uh, cup wins. You know, we've got, I'm going to go down to the list of a few of these names here, Matt Kenseth, 2000 in Charlotte, Kevin Harvick, 2001 in Atlanta. And I want to kind of mention that one because you talk about pressure that Dale Jr. was under, uh, you know, because of his father signing the big deal with Budweiser, but Kevin Harvick, you know, only a couple of weeks after, um, Dale Sr. was actually was a week after that, I believe it was uh, that uh, Sr. was killed. You know, they they put him into the 29 and they they run him in Atlanta and 
he winds up winning the, the race. I mean, you talk about a pressure, just the whole season had to be a pressure pet cook thing, but a pressure cooker kind of thing. But, you know, for him to win at Atlanta, um, you know, so, so quickly after we lost uh, senior, that has to be one of the, the guttiest um, drives I've ever seen. I, I was at that race and it was just, you know, to see Harvick, the way he won and the, almost like i don't want to use the word relief but i think that you know between how he felt how richard childress felt uh certainly they they um uh gave a lot of testimony to dale senior and in you know losing him and how this one was for him and that kind of thing that to me was just a race that just stands out in my mind as well too oh absolutely and you know they uh it was such a tough time because Richard Childress, many people know this, but Richard Childress seriously thought about shutting down RCR after, after Earnhardt's death and just a lot of emotion going on right there when we lost Dale and very, very tough time for him. Uh, so many scenarios going through their minds. Should we keep it going? Should we not? Uh, but a lot of people depended upon it continuing on. There was a lot of employees there at RCR it is something that Dale told Richard on a hunting trip years before that if something happens to me, you promise me that you continue this, the race team and continue on. And Richard said that back to him. And you promise that if, if something happens to me that you will continue on. And they agreed to it because Childress was in a situation where he almost lost his life in, in a, in an accident that happened during this hunting trip. It was a horse had thrown him. And he, he got hurt a little bit there and, and, you know, they had to get him back and stuff, but I mean, it was one of those scary moments and kind of woke them both up and said, look, if this, if something happens to me or you, we're going to agree to continue on. And he honored that he, he said, yes, we're going to continue on. And so he Harvick had already been driving in the Xfinity series, then the Bush series, right. he elevated him up to the cup series, but they didn't want to put him in the three car. They, that was just too much. They wanted to change the number. And Richard told me later, personally, he said, if I had been thinking, I would have made the car number 37 for the number three and seven championships. Now, looking back on that, I don't think he could have. I think Derek Cope was running the 37. But the reason they went to 29 was because that was the first available number that, that was available, and they went to 29 they painted the car white instead of black just an opposite situation there right. uh so because it was going to be too hard to see anybody else in the three car and they didn't run the three until what 10 or 12 years later i don't know the, the, how many years went by but it, it you know when austin uh dylan ran the three many years let's say it that way and uh so they go to atlanta everything comes together uh and and by the way uh trying to think how this worked uh the second race that year i believe was rockingham and uh steve park wins at rockingham for dei and then the third race if i'm not telling it incorrectly was atlanta mm -hmm. and that's when uh kevin harvick wins i want to say this when at at rockingham the second race you could have felt a pin drop at that race because the Earnhardt's passing and, and his miss, we were missing him so terribly. I mean, it felt so strange not having him there. 
it was just and i mean you could it was palpable i mean i'm not i can't i don't know how to explain it it was just knowing that he was not there and it was the cloud was so so dark and deep around that racetrack but steve park wins at rockingham we go on to atlanta harvick wins in the 29 for rcr everything starts to heal and we go from there but it was it was a massively uh celebratory maybe that's the better word way to uh to heal and, and move on but boy that was a big win in atlanta for kevin for sure well and then you know the the other thing going back um there was actually was vegas was in between rockingham and, and atlanta that year but the, okay. i remember about rockingham and that this was became a thing that not only was consistent every race of the 2001 season but it continued on i think into the actually 2003 2004 actually is how the majority of the fans would stand up at the beginning of the race and uh, they'd hold up three fingers either yeah. for the first three yeah. laps or on lap number three as kind of a memorial or a remembrance or a testimony to to uh, dale earnhardt senior as well too yeah, so it was hard it was really hard i mean it was man it was tough it was you know, we, we loved him and we cared so much for him. And he, he is so difficult to, de to describe for those fans, new fans today that never, never saw him race. It was so, uh, so difficult to put into words how tough those races were and that healing process, because I mean, he seven time champion, he was the man. I mean, even as a reporter, as a news person, you had everybody had respect for him I and mean, yeah. he did so much for the sport and he was a great friend but he also was a great leader i mean i don't know how to put it in, into words even sitting here today what he meant to our to nascar and our sport and uh just a tremendous individual and when we lost him it was really really hard and you know ben i think that what made it more compounding and more sad more tragic was the fact that it was in a race it you know if he had you know, not passed away as a result of a race and accident. And, you know, if he would have, you know, lived another 20 years or whatever yeah. and you know, died of natural causes or what have you, I don't think it would have been, you know, anywhere near the, um, the, the, the way it, it played out because, I mean, he was, like you said, he was the man. He was one of the greatest drivers ever. I mean, seven time champion, um, you know, and, even fans that rooted against him respected him and, you know, right. and, and, and he was just such a guy that, you know, you could just, um, you know, you, you, you couldn't deny what he was in terms of a driver, what he meant to the sport, what he meant to, you know, his organization at the time, Dale Earnhardt Incorporated. I mean, you know, it, had he not left us, uh, you know, in, in action, if you will, you know, in, in a race like that, um, you know, I think that I, I often wonder you know, how that might have changed things for Dale Jr. Uh, would DEI still be around? Would Dale, you know, I mean, I, I know Dale Sr. had talked about at some point retiring in the few years after, um, you know, uh, or, you know, but he had said it before, obviously he was tragically killed, but um, I, I often wonder how his passing changed junior and a reason i bring that up and i know we're getting close to the end of the show here but i wanted to throw this out here a few months back uh and i can't remember it was i can't remember if it was a tv thing it was a podcast it was something 
that Dale Jr. talked about the way he was early in his his uh, racing career. And, you know, he I, if I remember correctly, you know, the word he used was punk. He called himself a punk because, he, you know, he did a lot of things that, you know, people do when they're young. And right. now he, you know, he he regrets a lot of those things, but he will always point to, you know, what his father meant to him. And I, I know it changed him dramatically, uh, but I wonder how how he would have you know played out if his father had not been lost in such a tragic way. Do you know, you know what I'm trying to say? I mean, yeah, I, I, I do, I do. And I, I do know this to be a fact. I know that Dale Earnhardt senior was building DEI for Dale Earnhardt junior. I know mm-hmm. that to be a true and had the course of events that uh, took place radically changed the way that went down as far as the future of Dale Earnhardt incorporated. Had he lived, he would have retired in 2003. Mm-hmm. I've got a good source on that. That was in the works. Jeff Burton was the driver that was going to take the number three. Uh, that's a good, I have a good source on that. And, uh, and he would have stepped back and he would have uh, operated DEI and Dale Jr. would have been one of his drivers. And that he would have lived on and built DEI into a championship organization that that was the plan and uh it it was not to be and uh we see where all that that went out and how how it played out but uh yeah that was going to be the plan 2003 was going to be the last year for Dale Earnhardt as a driver and Jeff Burton was going to be the replacement on the number three Goodwrench car and we did and it didn't work out to be that way right Let's go through the list of some of the other drivers and their first rookie wins. Uh, we've got Jimmy Johnson in no, no surprise. Cause this was one of his best tracks. And of course it was in his backyard it was Fontana in 2002, Ryan Newman, New Hampshire, 2002, Greg Biffle, uh, Daytona, July, 2003. And Biffle it was good to see him racing uh, this yeah, past weekend in the sure Daytona was. 500. I mean, yeah. uh, you know, I, the, the one thing I've always would, I, I had hoped for such a long time with Biffle was that he would become the first driver to ever win a championship across all three series. Cause he won the trucks. He won the, well, the Ben Bush series, uh, but he never was able to win the cup series. And that's one thing that, you know, I, I always wished he would have won that, that cup, uh, cup championship um, going down the rest of the list, Kyle Bush, his first race in, uh, that he won was Fontana 2005, Denny Hamlin, Pocono 2006, Juan Pablo Montoya, his first race, not surprisingly on a road course, Sonoma 2007, uh, Joey Logano, New Hampshire, 2009. And of course that's in his backyard. He's from Connecticut. So New Hampshire was right up the, uh, the, the expressway essentially from where he grew up at Brad Keselowski, his first uh, cup win was Talladega 2009, Trevor Bain, of course, the Daytona 500 in 2011, Chris Busher, Pocono, 2016, Cole Custer, Kentucky, 2020, and Austin Sindrick will round out the list of the rookie drivers. And he has the biggest win of, of any, well, I mean, we had uh, two other drivers that wanted it, the Daytona 500 as rookies, but I mean, it doesn't get any bigger and better than that. So we also have a couple more things. We have a little bit of housekeeping to finish up before we uh, end this episode of the podcast. Uh, you know, this is obviously episode number 52. And as we do every, uh, every week, we talk about the episode number in conjunction with the car number. So this week, obviously episode 52. So we were going to talk about the car number 52. And I mean, I'm going to be very blunt, but kind. The 52 just was not a very winning number, was it? 
No, it really wasn't. Actually, there was only two victories uh, for the number 52. And of course, one of those we talked about earlier in the show, number 52 uh, with Earl Ross. Uh, he was uh, a Canadian driver that came down, as we spoke about earlier in the show, drove uh, for Junior Johnson as a team uh, member uh, with Cale Yarborough in 1974. And he won... Uh, at Martinsville Speedway uh, uh, on September 28th, 1974. And that's the only time he won in the Cup Series. Uh, but he was a great driver in the, uh, in the Canadian circles up there. And the reason, one of the reasons he came down, the sponsor was Carling Beer, which is a Canadian company. Uh, and uh, sadly, we lost uh, Earl in 2014. He was 73 years old at his passing. But yeah, just a, a, a great win for him uh, there at Martinsville. And, and I sort of take my hat off there because, you know, he was racing against Pearson and Petty and Kale and Donnie Allison and uh, Bobby Allison and some really tough, and Kale, some tough guys back in that era. And to be able to win on uh, Martinsville's uh, hair uh, paperclip sort of racetrack, uh, tremendous victory for him. And uh, I never had the honor of meeting him. But uh, I, I'm sure it was a tremendous victory for him. I remember listening to the race on the radio that day, and uh, it was just a, a great win for him, for sure. Exactly. And, you know, uh, as you mentioned, um, Earl Ross is our driver of the week, and our track of the week is Langhorn Speedway. And one of the most unique racetracks, I think, that either one of us has ever seen or heard uh, about Ben, tell us the story about Langhorn Speedway. Well, yeah, Jerry, you know, as most racetracks, this is the only one I've, I've ever heard being this way. At most every racetrack you think of two turns and two straightaways. This particular racetrack had no straightaways. It was a, it was a, a circle, a, a mile in length. It was in Pennsylvania. And we talked about, you know, you hear us talk about uh, numbers and how the first time a particular number of a car was raced at Langhorn, Pennsylvania. And I thought, well, you know, it'd be interesting to tell you a little bit about the racetrack, but it had no straightaways. It was a circle, a mile in length. And you think, wow, I mean, so you get in a race car and you're basically cranking to the left for the entire time that you're on this racetrack, whether it be 150 laps or 200 laps. And so in essence, what you have to do is you have to have a very, very strong left front tire and left front suspension mm -hmm. because you're turning left the whole time you're on this racetrack and it was in existence from 1926 to 1971 drivers such as Tur curtis turner and lee petty uh fonte flock tim flock a lot of drivers uh of, of course uh, big stars in nascar won on this racetrack some people we lost uh, on this racetrack too uh, because of the I don't know, because of possibly the fact there were no, were no straightaways uh, over the years, lost some folks on this track, but it's just a unique track, just a unique uh, place to race. And uh, it was very fast because of the fact that you're constantly turning, 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 turning on this track. But think about this. If, if, you, if you equate this to Dover uh, International Speedway is a mile in length. So if you configure this thing a little bit differently and you say, okay, I'm taking the straightaways out, I'm just going to make this thing 
a circle like a donut, for instance, but it's going to be a mile in length, then uh, I'm just going to, we're just going to be in a circle the whole time. Modifieds have run there. Stock cars had run there. Open wheel midget type sprint cars had run there. It's just it's a phenomenal racetrack. But again, 1926 to 1971, uh, I, I just think it's, it's amazing that, uh, that you could run something like that and be cranked left the entire time that you're on the track at speed. Pretty amazing racetrack. Exactly, exactly. All right, Ben, that's going to put a wrap on episode number 52 of a Lifetime in NASCAR podcast. A lot of stuff we went through today. And, uh, you know, obviously, congratulations again to Austin Cindric for winning the Daytona 500. But uh, at the same time, a lot of drivers, uh, we got a lot of great stories, as we typically do on every single episode of a Lifetime in NASCAR. And fans and listeners, we, we hope you enjoyed this episode. And we'll be back next week on a Lifetime in NASCAR with episode number 53. Ben, great show as usual. And look forward to speaking to you next week as well, too. Very good, sir. Looking forward to it. All right. All right, everyone, you take care. Have a good week. And we will talk to you on an episode of the night, uh, another episode number 53 of a Lifetime in NASCAR podcast next week. Take care, everyone. We'll talk to you soon. A Lifetime in NASCAR is hosted by Ben White and Jerry Bunkowski and produced by Josh Mall. A Lifetime in NASCAR is a proud member of the Out of the Groove Podcast Network and is available on all major podcasting platforms. Visit GroovyMotorsports.com for more shows, and don't forget to check out the Out of the Groove Weekly Viewer's Guide. The Weekly Viewer's Guide is fresh every week of the season and includes exclusive content from myself and Ben White you won't find anywhere else. Get it every week. It's all fresh. It's all free. And it's all on GroovyMotorsports.com. Eric Estep here. This episode is brought to you by Forney Industries. Get it done with green. Forney offers a full line of welding and plasma cutting machines, metalworking accessories, and more. For do-it-yourselfers all the way to professional metalworkers, Forney has everything you need for your next project. Shop Forney's top-of-the-line products at ForneyIn.com. That's Forney, F-O-R-N-E-Y, Ind, I-N-D.com, or at an authorized Forney dealer near you.